0: Hello, I must be going. I cannot stay, I came to say I must be going. I'm glad I came, but just the same, I must be going.
1: For my sake, you must stay, for if you go away, you'll spoil this party I
2: am through.
0: I'll stay a week or two.
2: I'll stay the summer through, but I am telling you,
0: I must be going.
1: So we're speaking with Drew Friedman. He has a new book coming out at the end of August from Fantagraphics called Too Soon, Famous and Infamous Celebrities, 1995 to 2010, an anthology of his magazine and book work. Um, Drew, I read recently that you were at a party with Albert Brooks. Right. Have you met Albert before?
2: No, that was the first time. Uh, It was a recent party in Los Angeles and Albert was a guest at the party. and. I'm, I'm a huge Albert Brooks fan, dating back to the early '70s, seeing him on um, Flip Wilson show and Saturday Night Live, even Ed Sullivan, his original appearances. So I'm a huge fan of his. So it was a treat to meet him. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, he—I'm not sure if he knew who I was, but you know, I gave him a, cop- a couple of copies of my Jewish comedians books, which he enjoyed. And he asked if his dad was in there because his dad had been a comedian uh, named Park Your Carcass. Mm-hmm. His, his father was actually um, named. Um, Harry Einstein, and as, as a joke, named his son Albert Einstein. Mm-hmm. So that's Albert's real, real name. Changed to Brooks when he became a comedian. But I said, no, your dad died a little too young. And his dad actually died on the dais at the Friars Club in 1958, um, a Friars tribute to Lucy Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz. He died right on the dais after doing his act. It was very sad mm-hmm. when Albert was 12. This is all incidental, but... Um, so. When I was talking with Albert at this party, um, he said, Drew, did you know that, um, that uh, Harpo's wife married Frank Sinatra, Harpo's ex-wife? I said, um, no, it was Zeppo's ex-wife. He said, no, no, it was Harpo's ex-wife. I said, no, it was Zeppo's ex-wife. I said, look, we have Andy Mark standing right here, Groucho's grandson. Let's, let's ask him. I said, Andy, which one of your uncles married Frank Sinatra? He said, well, Zeppo's wife. So, uh, <laughs> it was handy to have a, a grouchy son. That's why I like LA, you know. It's just handy to have Groucho's grandson, you know, when you need him.
1: And that kind of stuff happens, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The reason only I was in only in LA. The reason I was asking if you had met Albert before or if you knew him at all is because I have heard that uh, when he befriends somebody and he likes them, he Let's them in on the fact that he owns the audio of his father's death he has the audio of that friars club roast
2: yeah no i didn't know that but i'm not surprised because he actually helped his dad write some of the jokes for that roast right. when he was when he was 12. he talks about that in a rolling stone interview from a few years ago right. i'd love to hear it but i guess he didn't like me so much because he hasn't <laughs> offered he hasn't offered to, to let me listen to that yet but i'd love to
1: Uh, I also actually uh, interviewed Bob Einstein a few years ago, and I made the mistake of comparing Park Your Carcass to Burt Gordon, who you've uh, rendered in one of your old Jewish comedian books. Uh, Apparently, it's a sore nerve because um, Harry Einstein always felt that the mad Russian Burt Gordon was um, coasting off of his coattails or trying to cash in as they were both uh, regulars on the Eddie Cantor show once upon a time. Wow, I didn't know that. And uh, the interview did not get off on the right foot when I compared Burt Gordon to Parker But I would imagine not. No, I'll know not to
2: bring up uh, um, him in the future, Albert, but um, (laughs) yeah, I mean they're they're kind of similar kind of dialect comedians in the Jewish, you know, overly Jewish shtick Mm -hmm. and, and whatnot, but no, I didn't know that, so I'll be careful in the future.
1: Um, I, I was reading that uh, I know that Herbie Fay shows up in your second collection, uh, more more old Jewish comedians, mm-hmm. um, but I also read that Joey Fay had been rejected.
2: Well, I did a portrait of Joey Fay uh,
1: for the first book, and
2: it was ready to go, and I did a little you know research, uh, uh, just last minute research online to just get his real name because the the novelty of my Jewish comedians books. Uh, they're, they're not biographies. I mean, they're portraits of the Jewish comedians as, as older people, and it's all about the faces. But I have their real Jewish names, and in all cases, they had you know real Jewish names. The only guy who never changed his name, aside from Myron Cohn he had a middle name. But the only guy who really didn't change his name was Carl Reiner. His name was actually Carl Reiner. But Joey Fay, so I, I looked him up, and sure enough, his name was Joey Paladino. So he was a Jew poser. Oh wow you so always thought Joey Fay was the little ball guy who sneezed on the commercials but in so many movies and TV shows he would play a Jewish waiter or a Jewish a guy you know works in a haberdashery or you know he was always like a little Jewish guy and all of a sudden it turns out he was Italian so I had to reject him and when I did I decided to add Freddie Roman at the last minute um, who who wasn't quite old old enough to qualify but I had to change that rule I wanted to include Jewish comedians born before 1930 in the first volume. So then I I bent that rule because Freddie was born in 1932. Freddie is the dean of the Friars Club. And and I love his face. I loved his face. And I had some great reference on him. So I put him in at the last minute. And it it turned out to be um, uh, uh, good. It it worked out well because Freddie loved the book and and wanted the original art to his portrait and then arranged for a a party at the Friars Club for the book. Which is perfect, yeah. So that that just worked out perfectly.
1: (laughs) So then, Herbie Fay and Joey Fay weren't related.
2: No, I don't think so. No, Herbie Fay was actually Jewish, and Herbie Fay was Italian. So. Uh,
1: for some, I always connected them because you'd always kind of see them crossing paths in the same kind of TV shows and whatnot. Yeah, well,
2: Herbie Fay was a regular on Bilko. Um, Joey Fay was on, you know, the Phil Silver's Bilko show once, one episode, a famous episode, Harry speak up with the with the chimp who, uh, mm-hmm. all of a sudden, they induct into the army. <laughs> um, but they, you know, I'm sure their careers. You know, Herbie Fay was in everything, you know, leading into into the 60s. He was on every sitcom where he'd show up, he, again, playing a Jew. He would also play Jewish tailors or, you know, like kind of downtrodden, uh, beaten down uh, guys who just were sort of uh, weary about everything, but, you know, was usually a waiter or a tailor or something like that.
1: Um, in your new book, Too Soon, Famous and Famous Celebrities, there is a fantastic um introduction that you've written about your your life and your career and it's uh, it's a wonderful fascinating uh, biography and I want to ask you uh, about a few things that you do talk about at length in the in the the introduction but I want to talk about them for listeners sake Um, when you were a a teenager you had the chance to spend a day at the offices of mad magazine Um, at that point you were a pretty big fan of mad as I understand Um, what was that like and how did that come about
2: um, I, of course, I was a big fan of Mad. I wanted my dream as a youngster was to be a ma- uh, be a Mad contributor someday, and, and also do work for Topps Bubblegum Cards. Um, but I was I grew up loving Mad, and you know, those were my fav- Those guys were my favorite artists. You know, um, I, especially Don Martin and Mort Drucker, and you know the obviously choices. But then as I got older, I went back and looked at looked at the earlier issues with Will Elder and loved all that stuff. And the EC Comics. Um, but my um, my dad, uh, was, who's was a writer, um, just arranged it with Bill Gaines in 1972 to have me come up for the day. And it, to, through my school, was they were doing work study programs. where, you, where students would go out and spend a day, like at some interesting job, and observe and then write about it. So, you know, I asked my dad to do me that favor and set it up with Bill Gaines, which he did. So I spent a I spent the whole afternoon there and of course it was a great treat mostly in Gaines' office but I wandered around they let me wander around freely and you know I got to spend time with Sergio Argonis and John um, uh, Fucci um, the, the art director then was uh, well um, I forget, there were a couple of editors there and you know my their name is like uh, Jerry DiFuccio that's the guy he, mm-hmm. was, he, was, he was there and the art director his name will come to me I forget he hasn't he died a few years ago at the time and so that was a real treat just spending and in my head i thought well you know I'm, I'm hanging out here so of course of course i'm gonna you know they're gonna ask me to contribute because i brought some of my cartoon samples up you know of course they weren't very good because i was twelve years old or something i thought they were good but they weren't very good but i had this fantasy like they're gonna hire me they're gonna love what i do and you know so they sat me down and, and said like you look you have to go to art school and you have to draw some <laughs> live models and all this stuff and you know so i you know I decided, like you know, it'll never happen. So, but you know, sure enough, 20 years later, I did join the staff of Mad, as far as becoming one of the usual gang of idiots. So it, it took 20 years, but it did happen.
1: Did you ever get the chance to meet Dave Berg?
2: I met Dave Berg years later when I first started doing work for Mad around '94. And Mad used to have an annual Christmas party at the Society of Illustrators, so I went to that, my first Mad Christmas party, and sat at the table with Dave Berg. Dave Berg. Which was a real treat because um, he, you know, he 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 dominates the conversation, but everything he had to say was amusing. So it was just a treat to sit there and listen to him. And you know, he's he is he was what he how he portrayed himself. Mm-hmm. He was just you know he loved talking about Mad and cartoons and himself. And uh, he, I think he wore a Dave Berg Dave Berg T-shirt, you know, <laughs> but I'm Dave Berg. I'm Mad Magazine's Dave Berg. So it was just like a Dave Berg cartoon come to life. And he looked just like the way he draws them too with the corn pipe and all that stuff. So yeah.
1: I, I it, read, that was a treat. I read an interview with uh, Al Jaffe uh, from last year where he was talking about Dave Berg and said that he had a messianic type complex or where, in which he felt that if, if there was no Dave Berg there would be no Mad Magazine. Mm-hmm. And that'll... that'll yeah.
2: <laughs> Interesting theory. You know, it's, <laughs> it's possible. You know, I, mean, I know Dave Berg was... Uh, he was one of the essential guys in the '60s. You know, the, people looked forward to the lighter side as much as they looked forward to Spy vs. Spy and the, and the movie parody. And you know, he was really an essential part of it. You know, he was and his paperbacks. I think I'm guessing sold as well as the Don Martin paperbacks. I could be wrong, but you mm-hmm. know, so I loved his stuff as much as I loved all the other guys back um, in the '60s when yeah. I was
1: growing up. Uh, in the same Jaffe uh, interview, he mentioned that. Um, I guess in the 60s and se- 70s, a lot of the guys would kind of make jokes behind Dave's back about Dave. And uh, uh, Dave Berg was convinced that Mad Magazine was hiding his fan mail from him because mm. they didn't want his uh, him to. Well, I don't know what, what the justification he thought for that theory, but that's funny.
2: Well, I guess there could be a book about Dave Berg. You know, everybody has a Dave Berg story mm-hmm. and stuff. And you know, I I love Dave Dave Berg's work, but I also love the National Lampoon parody of Dave Berg mm-hmm. and they did in the early 70s. That was like that on. Um, but yeah, like all those guys, to meet them is a, is a great treat. They're all sweet. Um, they, they, you know, they, some of them are pretty. Uh, Al Jaffe, he's like up there. He's about ninety now, but he's still like he's he's still attuned to what's going on, and he's still lively. And it's great talking to him and, and all those guys. Mm-hmm. They're terrific guys.
1: Now, the same year that you went and spent a uh, day at Mad Magazine, you spent a week at Marvel. Yeah,
2: I did that too. It was the same arrangement. My dad actually, my dad actually worked at Magazine Management, which was the company, you know, of course that owned Marvel Comics in the 50s and sixties. So he knew Stanley pretty well, um, and he knew him through, you know, when uh, before the superhero revival in the early sixties. So you know, when Stanley had one office, one secretary, and and that was it. That was all of Marvel Comics for a while. And it, this the story was that Martin Goodman was trying to phase them out, you know, it, Martin Goodman, who ran the company, was just trying to phase them out, because the comics weren't selling too well, and all of a sudden, you know, the stuff hit in the early 60s, and, and that was, the rest is history, but so my father stayed in touch with them, and then the same deal, he arranged for me to spend a week up there, like, doing a, like, a, part of this work-study program, to hang out and, and run errands for, for the artists and and, and the writers, so that was, that was a lot of fun, too, and you know, I think I was 12 or 13 at that point. Mm-hmm. And spent time in Stan's office and also spent time with John Romita, who was very sweet. And Roy Thomas was up there. And some of these guys, you know, like they didn't know what to do with me, so they'd send me on errands to pick up artwork across town, things like that. So I felt like I was part of their, you know, the team Mm -hmm. for for a week there. But I didn't aspire to work for them as much as Mad because as much as I enjoyed the superhero comics at that time, um, I knew that wasn't the direction I wanted to head in. But still, you know, it was fun to be part of that for at least a week. I'm sure that nobody has any memory of me hanging around there. I was just like a little kid. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: But uh, yeah, that was fun. That was fun.
1: And then in the late 70s, you attended the New York School of Visual Arts, and it was an art school with a pretty impressive faculty. Um, I think some of our listeners would be intrigued and maybe surprised to hear who some of your teachers were. Could you tell us a little bit about that?
2: The reason I chose that school is because I looked through the catalog uh, the, of teachers, and sure enough, there was Harvey Kurtzman teaching a course. There was Will Eisner teaching a course, and and other cartoonists, illustrators. Edward Sorrell was teaching a course, and Stan Mack. Art Spiegelman was teaching. You know, all these guys who were, who, who li- most of them lived in New York, right in Manhattan, so it was easy for them. Some of them commuted into, Harvey Kurtzman lived, lived uh, further um, in, uh, I think, above Yonkers or so you know, it was. It, but you know, it was, at the school, people took you know, just they they were just teachers. So people took them for granted. So, you know, I, in fact, I was in Will Eisner's class, and there was one other student in the class at one point. You know, so it was just, it was no big deal. But it was a big deal to me. You know, and it was a thrill to be part of Harvey Kurtzman's class. And I took his class for three years running, and we got to be very friendly. We had our ups and downs in the class, but we got to be we got to be friends. In fact he asked this. A couple of years later, he was planning to do a humor magazine again, and he asked if I would, if I was interested in editing it, and I said, oh, of course, of course, and, you know, knowing Harvey, he's sometimes referred to as Harvey the Vague, he never brought it up again. I never heard a thing about it again, So, but, you know, that was okay. I was flattered that he asked me anyway.
1: Is there some kind of story about a chair being thrown out the window during a Harvey Kurtzman class?
2: Yeah, I think there are stories that have been exaggerated over the years about Harvey, Harvey encouraged a party like atmosphere in his class. In yeah. the very first class of every every year he'd bring in balloons and he'd have, he'd have everybody blow them up and the whole deal was, you know, when they you blow it up till till it explodes and that's like, you know, the sort of what what you expect from a cartoon strip or or a cartoon, you know, it's like it builds up and then, you know, you get the punchline at the end or you get, you know, the big bang. He encouraged a, a party-like atmosphere, so I gave it to him, you know. And I, so the party, the the, the class was festive. It was like, you know, it was basically like, it was thirteenth grade. It was like a romper room. It was like so. So things went flying around. I think a chair might have gone. I don't know if I threw it. Somebody threw it, I suppose. But you know, and, and worse things happened than that. I'm sure. You know? That's <laughs> that's minor. I think that's the that's the the G-rated version. A chair went out the window. I think some people went out the window too. <laughs> But it was a lot of fun. And overall, he enjoyed it. A couple of times he'd come in, he was like, you know, maybe he had a bad day, so he'd, like, have to compose himself. But overall, he enjoyed the whole atmosphere of the class and, you know, whatever I brought to it. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, so that was, you know, it was just fun. It was the
1: 13th grade. It was like clown college, basically. And Art and Arch Spiegelman and Will Eisner were also teaching there?
2: Yes, yeah, Spiegelman was teaching a language of the comics course, and Eisner was teaching, uh, he was teaching, well, he was actually teaching Himself, he was, you know, he was interested in talking about himself and his work. So that's what he was teaching.
1: You had described in uh, in in one of your introductions to I can't remember which one of your books, but that Will Eisner was a bit of a pompous blowhard.
2: Yeah, that's how we came off. I got along with him fine. Uh, and he liked me too. In fact, he once said, "Like Friedman, you remind me of me when I was your age."
1: So we got <laughs> along,
2: you know. And, and he would sort of, behind you know people's backs, he'd sort of like m- mimic uh, people at comic conventions. The kids who would come up to him, and you know, he sort of like would wink at me and like uh, uh, like let me in on you know what he was actually thinking sometimes about some of the fanboys and and like that and people he had to deal with in his world. But um, so we got along. But we fell out of touch after. Um, School of Visual Arts SVA and I hadn't I just didn't keep in touch with him for whatever reason and I think he was a little hurt hurt by that so um, so later on you know he, he would say some negative things about me and like distort some of the facts about you know he would some some of the things that would happen like involving other students it, be, it became about me you know because he was aware that I was having you know some success in my career so he was I think a little felt a little left out so you know but I, I have fond memories of him as a teacher you know it was, it was great to be in his presence as much of it, it, it was great to be in harvey kurtzman's presence and art spiegelman who was starting raw magazine at that time
1: mm-hmm. we're speaking with drew freeman legendary illustrator and the author of the new book coming out at the end of august too soon famous and infamous celebrities 1995 to 2010 a collection of portraits of drew's from the last Uh, 15 years from various magazines and books coming out from Fantagraphics at the end of the summer. um, In the late 80s, Drew, you got the opportunity to, I guess, cash in on a dream, I don't know how much of a dream it was at that point, but to work for the Topps Trading Card Company. How did you get that gig? And I'm most intrigued about what was the facility where you worked at like? Because that was responsible for decades of, of sort of strange product, the Topps Company.
2: Great. Um Well, Art Spiegelman had been out there uh, working at Topps in Brooklyn since the late 60s, and he was involved with uh, Wacky Packs and a lot of the series, you know, humorous series they did. And uh, when when I was going to School of Visual Arts, one of my classmates was Mark Newgarden, who um, who Art Spiegelman invited to uh, become his assistant at Topps um, to uh to create um, new products, and you know, just basically to uh, to just work at aside side out there. So, the one of the first um, things they came up with together was Garbage Pail Kids, which was you know a huge phenomenal hit. Went into I don't know thirty six different series, or uh, it was huge. So at that point, Mark had enough clout to um, to come up with his own concepts for for new series, and one of them he had in mind was a series about an insane. Uh, high school a fantasy of, of a high school extreme like um, the extreme of a high school and he, he he invited me out to to work on that to do the artwork and to help him with the scripts and and do all the sketching and penciling and, and so that's how it was around 1988 so that's how i i wound up at tops which had, again was one of my childhood dreams to because uh, I, I grew up loving the ugly stickers that you know wallywood and basil wilberton were responsible for and and norm saunders who did some of the beautiful color painting for them for the batman cards and mars attacks was a hero of mine as well so that was a, a dream and also the wacky packs which i loved and collected like everybody else so that's what brought me out there and the building itself was an old warehouse building like close to the in brooklyn uh close to the uh the east river and it would just look like a like a factory, like a dark green factory. You'd never notice it. You'd, you know, there was just a small sign outside that you know, it said Tops, Tops, uh, I said Tops Bubblegum, or just Tops. Never would have noticed it. I would take the subway out there, and it was just, you know, it's a huge factory. They're not there anymore. I think they moved to Manhattan. But you know, it was just, uh, it was just like stepping back into the past to walk through the building and then to their offices. And their offices were the product development department. So that was, it was just a lot of fun to, you know, take a subway out there a couple times a week, and and that became, you know, took up most of my time at that point.
1: And was that the same place where they manufactured things like baseball cards as well, or was that done somewhere else?
2: Everything was done there, but as far as the manufacturing, I don't believe it was done there. That might have been done in Pennsylvania. I'm not exactly clear. It might have been done in Scranton.
1: And maybe a separate uh, factory for gum as well?
2: Yeah, I don't think they, although the the place smelled like gum. Yeah. Permeated the building, the gum, but I don't think they actually made the stuff there. You know, I'm not un- entirely sure about this, um, but yeah, that's a, it's like that's where they you know created the stuff, and then I, I think it was all you know shipped out or you know, sprung from someplace else. Mm-hmm. But you know, it was but it was a lot of fun. To, you know, it was just uh, again like a throwback, like just going back in, in time to go to that building and mm-hmm. being part of that. So, but I worked on a few series for them, include. Uh, Starting with Toxic High and I also designed some candy products like the Barfo family, which were like these little um, containers. Where you'd like little accordions of like with a with person's head at the end and you'd squeeze it and the candy would come out of the mouth. and some other like rude candy products and, and some other fun things.
1: It seemed like you had a great deal of creative freedom for such a mainstream sort of um, operation.
2: We did, uh, we did, and we didn't, because once we finally finished the whole project, um, the guys in charge finally looked at it and 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 then felt it maybe we went a little too far with some <laughs> of the violence and you know some of the bloodletting,
1: right, et cetera.
2: So it it was toned down a bit, and then uh, you know it, they finally released it, but it wasn't ex- exactly what we had in mind. You know, it was like almost there, but they really cut cut, cut back and you know they they played it safe. There had been a lot of like uh, Kick, uh, random school killings over the last—I right. mean, in the late '80s—so that affected their decision to they like, tone this, tone this down. They didn't want um, to uh, get in trouble for that, for releasing something that might instigate more violence. So the whole project was, uh, you know, sort of had it was castrated a bit. But you know, it, it, I'm still pleased with it. Mm-hmm. It was fun to work on. But the best thing about doing work for TOPS for me was that it forced me to loosen up stylistically. I had been doing a stipple style for a few years with the Tops work. Most of the work I did for them was penciling. But, you know, I turned out a lot, like, you know, 20 drawings per week or more, like large drawings and then yearbook faces as well. So it just really forced me to, to go to work a lot faster, not to labor over the work, which I had been doing. And, and that was valuable. I thought it was valuable, valuable for me because I just, you know, knew I, I was able to, like, you know all of a sudden I realized I could meet a deadline, which I had never really considered before. I would just work at my own pace doing my comic strips, and, you know, sometimes a panel of a comic strip would take me a week. You know, I wasn't making any money doing it, or very little money, but that wasn't even, you know, it wasn't even uh, an issue for me. But, you know, it just like, it dawned on me, like, I can work, I can work a lot faster, and, you know, and the qual hopefully the quality is still there, and, and I, I, I could meet a deadline, which I hadn't considered before. So that's mm-hmm. when I started doing more work for magazines on a regular basis.
0: I have a sad story to tell you. It may hurt your feelings a bit. Last night when I walked into my bathroom, I stepped in a big pile of shaving cream. Lean ice and clean. Shave every. With my girlfriend. Her antics are queer, I'll admit. Each time I say, darling, I love you, she tells me that I'm full of shaving cream. Be nice and clean, shave every day, and you'll always look keen. Our babies fell out of the window. You'd think that her head would be split. But good luck was with her that morning She fell in a barrel of shaving cream Be nice and clean Shave every day and you'll always look keen An old lady died in a bathtub She died from a terrible fit in order to fulfill her wishes she was buried in six feet of shaving cream be nice and clean save every day and you'll always look keen when i was in france with the army one day i looked into my kit i thought i would find me a sandwich But the darn thing was loaded with shaving cream Be nice and clean Shave every day and you'll always look keen And now, folks, my story is ended I think it is time I should quit If any of you feel offended Stick your head in a barrel of shaving cream Be nice and clean. Shave every day and you will
1: always keen. I think most uh, big Drew Friedman fans out there are aware that you were sued by WOR talk show host Joe Franklin. Um, Before that happened, what did you think of Joe Franklin? Did you watch his show growing up?
2: Yeah, I always watched it growing up on Channel 9 late at night. You know, it was sort of a nightlight. So, you know, it was always on. You know, when I. if I was reading, the Joe Franklin show would be on as a nightlight. But I love Joe, and my, my brother Josh, who, who wrote the, who wrote some of the early comic strips about Joe Franklin, including a life story about Joe Franklin that we did, that's in our first book, uh, was also a huge fan and, and had done a lot of research on Joe and saved clippings, which led to the first piece we did on him, the, the Joe Franklin story. The piece I did about him called The Incredible Shrinking Joe Franklin ran in Heavy Metal magazine, in the early 80s, and Joe was very, he's, he's, very, he's very short, you know, it's like it's obvious, but he's very touchy about his height. So when it, the, the piece came out, he, it came, uh, the day it came out, there was, uh, he called the editor of Heavy Metal and said, you know, he's very displeased, he's going to sue. And, and so that was it. So he sued Nash Lampoon, which owned Heavy Metal and me, for $40 million, and, you know, which I thought was a reasonable amount. I had about a dollar in my bank account at the time. He was entitled to that. Um, but fortunately, he, he also sued the Lampoon, so they handled the lawyers, and, you know, so the whole thing cost me about a dollar, because I had to take a subway up to meet with the lawyers just to talk <laughs> about it. And, you know, long story short, um, the suit was dismissed before it ever went to trial, because, you know, whoever made the decision, the, the judge, uh, decide, you know, just obviously, you know, it, it, this is a comic strip, this is a parody, nobody's really believe, going to believe you're shrinking, and you know, like that it's like so you know, there's not there's no lawsuit here and that was the end of that <laughs> but um Joe is he's sued a few other people so I'm in good company he sued Uncle Floyd once for 35 million so I outbeat Uncle Floyd <laughs> and then he threatened to sue some other people including Billy crystal and and lately Sarah silverman right. um, after her her turn in um, the aristocrats but uh, you know the end of the story is that when I had my friars party for my second Jewish comedian book Two years ago, who should walk in but Joe Franklin? <laughs> People like you know, like the seas parted, like Joe Franklin is here. So I approached him, and I said, Joe, no hard feelings. And he looked at me, and he said, "Joe Friedman, nice to meet you, Joe Franklin. I uh-huh. love your book. I love your book. I'm going to promote it on my radio show. I'm, uh, I want you to come to one of my 125 restaurants. He had no restaurant. <laughs> but he had no memory of ever suing me. That's that's it comes down to that he had no memory you know so we're
1: best friends we're great friends now you know, Joe and I yeah, he's such a strange fellow um, how does he survive financially I've never been able to really figure it out he sustains that I have
2: no idea but he still he still if you call his office he'll pick up the phone uh, I think he does a segment on Bloomberg News uh, show business section it's quite right. possible I'm not even sure the, about that but. It's, he, maybe he saved his money over the years. I have no idea, but I know he still walks the streets of Manhattan. He still goes. He can still. You can still see him at the Friars, Friars Club. He's on the dais at Friars roasts. You know, he gets a he gets a meal.
1: Yeah. And he's still there. He's
2: he's I guess in his early 80s now. Yeah, he's, but he's, he's he's still kicking.
1: Yeah, he's 84. I did actually speak to him two weeks ago because I was writing an article about uh, Rusty Warren, mm-hmm. and uh, one of the only. I'm sorry, Rusty's going to be in my third. I'm doing a third Jewish comedian book, and Rusty Warren's going to be Excellent. There. Eileen Goldman. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you spoken to her? She's around.
2: No, no. You know, I'm trying not to speak to the people I'm drawing, because then, you know, you get into, well, can I see a sample of what you're going to do, or can I see the right. drawing? And I don't want to go there. I'd rather...
1: Yeah, of course. And
2: so far, everybody's been uh, delighted with the way I've portrayed them, or, or the people's, you know, if I hear from the... the if, a lot of these people are deceased, of course, so I hear it sometimes from their, late, from their wives or their husbands like, or, or their children, like how happy they are. The only person who didn't like um, their portrait was Jack Carter, who's notoriously angry. He's always angry. <laughs> so he didn't like it. He complained. Uh, my friend Ben Schwartz uh, did a piece about the book for the Los Angeles Times. Talked to Jack Carter. Talked to Jerry Lewis, Freddie Roman, Mickey Freeman, uh, my dad, a few other people about the, uh, Larry Gilbart, a few other people about the books. The only guy who was angry who hated it was Jack Carter. He said, uh, his quote was like, uh, first of all, mm-hmm. Jewish. I don't work Jewish. And he said, and old. I'm not old. <laughs> no, he's close to 90. Yeah. And he said, and he made me look stupid with that haircut, with that with the bald in the middle. I'm not bald in the middle, and the liver spots. But then he praised all the other portraits. He said, the, the Sid Caesar's dead on. And Buddy Hackett, that's him. So, but it, that, he wanted me to draw him again. Uh, that was like uh, so but I didn't you know but I I was delighted with his response because that's what you expect from Jack Hardy yeah of course you expect anger so that's what I got (laughs) (laughs) he was the only guy who was angry everybody else has been pleased with
1: the portrait. well knowing Rusty I'm sure she'll be thrilled to even be in the book but um, do you ever have trouble finding a photograph of a more obscure comedian that you're trying to do a portrait of has it come to a point where you wanted to do somebody and you just couldn't find a a proper image to base it on to actually be able to do it
2: is usually you know with, with the first book I had I had saved over the years and one of the reasons I decided to do the first book of all Jewish comedian portraits was because I had saved so many little clippings over the years of of these of, of I have a file so i had saved little uh, photographs including the the cover drawing is of Milton Burrow with the cigar mm-hmm. pointing his finger I had saved that photo of Milton Berle's face for like 20 years. It was in People magazine. It was one of those little black-and-white photos that you'd see on a page with other photographs, and like little quotes or whatever. I just loved that face. It was just staring at the reader with the cigar shoved in his mouth. So I converted that into the cover image and and added color, painted it in full color, and added his hand pointing at the reader. Because one of my fondest memories is angry Milton Berle, when you go on Joe Franklin especially. Joe would interrupt him occasionally, and, and and Milton would point the finger at him and say, "Joe, don't you interrupt me when I'm talking," like that, with the cigar shoved in. It's just angry. I love angry. I love these angry, angry comedians. Guys who are supposed to be make you laugh, but they're angry. <laughs> Buddy Hack was another one. Just always looked angry. A lot of them like that. But I, usually, I can come up with a reference. Uh, you know, now people send me photographs because they know what I do, or you know, they know what I, I enjoy drawing. Mm-hmm. And now, with, of course, with the web, it's like you can you can dig up obscure, you know. But there are occasionally, you know, I want to do London Lee for the next book, but I'm not being, I'm not really able to come up with much. And then there's a, what's happened now is some of the comedians are contacting me to be included in the books. I'm doing the last book. This is the third of mm-hmm. the trilogy. It's the final one. I said the second one was going to be the final one, but I and I have a list of about 150, you know, more, including Arnold Stang and so many others that you know I kind of left out and I feel bad and, and more women and actually younger some of the younger older Jewish comedians guys who are now like in their late 60s and early 70s like Richard Belzer and Gabriel Gabe Kaplan mm-hmm. David Steinberg and Robert Klein and David Brenner's actually in his mid 70s now yeah some of the younger guys you think of as younger now so I'm including some of those guys but uh, one of the... The things that's happening is, you know, aside from people contacting me, like Larry Storch wrote me a nice letter and said he'd love to be included in the second book, and sure enough, he sent me a great photo and I used it as reference, and he's in there, and a few of the other guys, and then um, Mickey Freeman, who was in the first book, and he was in, he used to play Fielding Zimmerman and Sergeant Bilko mm-hmm. in the fifties, of course, it's become sort of a mascot for the books. Um, he sends, he's sending me his old friends from like the Catskills, like dating back to the forties. Some of the guys he used to perform with. A lot of them I had never heard of. One guy, Van Harris. I'd never heard of the guy. So I asked Mickey, I said, "Is he Jewish?" He said, "Of course he's Jewish."
1: <laughs>
2: so I said, "Okay, well have him, you know, send me some, you know, send me uh, some photos. I am curious." So Van Harris sends me a package of photographs of himself from the 1940s and 50s posed with Joey Lewis and Milton Burrow, and and sends me a long, you know, biography of himself and I wrote him back and I said, uh, "Hi, Van. Um, thanks for sending the stuff, and it's terrific, and it's great to learn about your career and everything." But I think Miss, Mickey misinformed you. I th- I'm doing a book of portraits of Jewish comedians as they look now, like as you know, as you look now. And he wrote back and he said, "Oh, Drew, that's an interesting idea." I said, uh, "He said I don't really have any uh, photographs of myself as I look now, but I'll I'll see if I can get some from my uh, my my. I'll see if I can get my grandchildren to uh, take some photos of me." But I haven't heard back from him. Right. I think he wanted to be included in a book about you know, the, the past, about yeah. like, those, you know, the comedians from the past, and, and here's his biography. But that's not what I was doing. So I, I hope I still hear back from him.
1: I, I saw you post an image of a, of a comedy record that I have a copy of, and I've never seen another copy of it anywhere or know anything about a fellow named Emil Cohen, America's foremost Jewish humorist. Do you yeah. remember that?
2: I know his name. I, I don't think I've heard him perform, but I certainly know his
1: name. The uh, the comedy record's interesting. It's uh, setups in English and punchlines in Yiddish. Yeah, that's a great concept. Yeah, but uh, but I can't find any information about him whatsoever. Even though he is America's foremost Jewish humorist, there's uh, interesting.
2: Yeah, yeah. I, I think I posted a photograph of him on on yeah. on, Plons- on Plonsky, which is a group yeah. on Facebook. I think I put an Emil Cohen uh, uh, album cover up on on Plonsky. Um, I have a friend, Ron Smith, who's a comedy historian, and he like, knows everybody across mm-hmm. the board. And he had never heard of Van Harris, the guy I was just talking about. And Bobby Baker, who's in my second book, Female. Ah, uh, yes, Female friend of Mickey Freeman's, who was was billed as the queen of the cruise ship.
1: I, I have an album by Bobby Baker. It's, is it the one where she's on the elephant? Yeah, I'll do anything yeah. for money, yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's a famous album cover because it's included in one of the worst album covers of all time, uh, one of those books. Yeah. <laughs> I hadn't heard of her, but yeah, I know that album cover now. But she's in the book, and she's been—you know, she she wrote me, you know, she sent me photographs of herself as she looks today, and and and, and she was thrilled to be included. Mm -hmm. I think some of these folks are are convinced that you know if they get in these books, it's going to help revive their career, right? You know, which I'm, I'm, you know, if that's the way they feel, I'm I'm delighted. And I know uh, some of the some of the people, Mickey Freeman and Larry Storch, have been taking the books to some of the autograph shows they do and Mm -hmm. selling them there, you know. Uh, autographing him and inscribing, so that's 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 nice for me to hear.
1: Larry Storch is a great guy too. Yeah, he's
2: terrific. He's and he, oh, he came to the second Ferraris party, and he's just as sharp as ever and mm-hmm. funny. Does you know dead-on impersonations? He's up there too. He's about 87, 89. He's just yeah. as funny as ever. He's just you know really really brilliant, brilliant. comedian. I think.
1: Yeah. And he was great on F Troop too, and he's still great. And he was, uh, in the 50s, he was gigantic. People forget he was a huge, huge draw as a nightclub comic. He was,
2: a nightclub, even on TV. He was host of a uh, like Texaco Star Theater for a while.
1: Mm-hmm. And he's
2: the guy who invented the Judy, 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 Cary Grant impersonation. The, the, the routine was about Cary Grant encountering Judy Garland backstage. Right. But Larry, Gar- Larry Storch was the guy who, uh, who instigated that. But he's a, he's a really sweet guy, He and is, It's yeah. like a real treat to meet him. And, and he came up and he did about 10 minutes of material, like dead on impersonations of John Rivers and
1: <laughs> and,
2: and other people at the Fires. It was just
1: a real treat. I saw him do a, a recent impression of um, John McCain, Larry Storch. And Larry Storch was able to distort his entire face and just, I don't even know if he spoke that much, but he looked just like John McCain just by wow. moving his mouth. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, could, I
2: could sort of picture that.
1: Um, when I finish talking to you today, I actually have to call Norm Crosby because I'm interviewing him today as well.
2: Okay, well, Norm is going to be in the third book as well.
1: Have you ever considered doing a book of uh, old Gentile comedians after this trilogy is completed?
2: Well, actually, like, funny you brought up Norm Crosby because you know I, re- I, re- I really check into this stuff just to be careful. Norm Crosby's dad was not Jewish, mm-hmm. thus the name Crosby, but his mother was Jewish. It was the same uh, with Bud Abbott. His father wasn't Jewish. His mother was Jewish. So, you know, he, he and, and uh, he, he um, was uh, raised Jewish. But a few people questioned, like, well, Bud Abbott, well, I didn't know he was Jewish. I said, well, yeah, his mom was Jewish. And, you know, and actually Bud Abbott's wife, Betty, converted to Judaism um, years later. So, you know, he was a serious Jew. But I considered doing a book of non-Jewish comedians of uh, Protestant comedians, but it would be a pamphlet, right?
1: <laughs> you know, you can
2: come up with a couple of them here and there. But, you know, uh, somebody suggested a book of Italian comedians. There's a lot of them. I mean, because Joey Fay couldn't be included in this book, in these books, he could be included. There's a lot of great Italian comedians. You know, Pat Cooper and um, Jackie Gleason, half Italian, Luca Stolo, half Italian. But there's so many great, even Dean Martin, you know, I think of as a comedian, singer-comedian. And uh, so many great ones, but that should be an Italian artist should draw that. Just like someone suggested, I should do a book of old black comedians. But my thinking was, uh, a young black artist should do that. You know, I'm going to stick to the Jews.
1: Mm -hmm. And you met some of these people when you were a youngster. Um, You you had a chance to actually meet Groucho Marx when you were a kid. I
2: actually met him three times in my young life. The first time at a production of Minnie's Boys, which is the Broadway musical about the Marx Brothers and their mom, Minnie. Groucho was a consultant at the show in 1970, so I was about 10, and sat in the front row every night. And so I approached him and got an autograph on my playbill. That was really brief. And then, uh, again, at a party a couple years later, in 1973, in New York, he was doing ads for Teacher's Scotch, um, print ads for Teacher's Scotch. George Burns was also doing ads for it. So uh, there was a party for him at a New York City uh, nightclub called and my dad, my, my dad took me and, and, my, and my brothers to that. And we got to talk to him a little bit there. But the the best, the, the, the last time was the charm. My dad was invited to his house in 1975, his house in the Hollywood Hills. His, the, his girlfriend at the time, who was named Erin Fleming, mm-hmm. knew my father and invited him, said Groucho loves to be surrounded with young people. So he invited my dad and my brothers and I to his house to, to spend the afternoon there. Uh, I was about 15, um, and it was amazing. It was an amazing afternoon. You know, we were there for about you know, four or five hours, and it was incredible. We got to the door. Our hair was long then, so we got to the door, and Groucho approached. He, pro- you know, we they opened the door, and, and Groucho approached us. He was wearing shorts. He was 85 at the time. He'd been slowed down by you know a series of strokes, but he walked towards us, and he looked. He looked at us, and he said to my dad, "It's a pleasure to meet." You and your three lovely daughters. So
1: <laughs>
2: we, um, it just, every everything he, out of his mouth was a punchline. You couldn't actually, you know, say anything without him just finishing the sentence. And then when he finished it, he just, you know, it was all over. A couple of highlights were um, a guy walked in and said, uh, Hi, my name is Mark. And Groucho looked at him and said, What's your first name, Trade? <laughs> and then, Dennis Wilson came in from the, uh, the Beach Boys Dennis Wilson, Wilson drummer, came in and he said hey Mr. Marx, it's an honor to meet you Groucho looked at him and obviously didn't know who he was but he said well it ought to be and then my brother Josh asked uh, Groucho about um, Groucho had lived in Great Neck Long Island in the late 20's before he moved out to Hollywood we lived in Great Neck in the 60's so uh, there was a theater in Great Neck called the Playhouse it had been a Vaudeville burlesque theater uh, years ago, and it became a movie theater when we were there. But we asked, my brother Josh asked Groucho about the, this theater, the Playhouse Theater. He said, Groucho, do you remember the Playhouse Theater in Great Neck? They had an old organ in the back, and Groucho stopped and said, I got an old organ myself. <laughs> and that was it. So everything was like, it was It was amazing, and he did all his old songs, or, you know, lots of them. And his, his, uh, one of his nephews, I think Bill Marks, who I, think, I believe is Harpo's son, accompanied him on piano so it was an amazing afternoon wow and then the 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 end of the story or the, the sad part for me now is that when we got home Aaron fleming called my dad and said oh grouch really loved having you he'd like you all to come back next week because he's going to be having a reunion with may west who we haven't seen for 35 years since they were both at paramount so my dad turned to us and said hey guys uh Groucho would like you guys, would like us all to come back, and we kind of looked at each other and goes, "Ah, we had enough Groucho, you know." But to this day, I'm still kicking myself mm-hmm. about not going back to that.
1: <clears throat> you also had the chance to meet some other legends when you were a kid, uh, Carl Ballantyne, who you rendered in one of your old Jewish comedians books, I believe. You met us.
2: Well, he was in one of my dad's plays. He was in a musical that my dad wrote, and he was he was so I you know I got to meet him briefly. When I was when I was little, you know, seven, eight years old or something, right. you know, I was just a little kid, so he like pat me on the head. But years later, I did a signing for one of the Jewish comedian books. He came to one, he came to the signing and sat in the audience, and and then came up and sat with me. This was like a, a year before he died. I think he died last mm-hmm. year, or the year before. Sat with me and and signed copies, and that was a real treat. You know, and he, his daughter brought him. He, when he was sitting in the audience, he was sort of nodding off. He was going to sleep. You know. And at one point he raised his hand and he said, uh, when do I get my supper?
1: <laughs> that was his only question. <laughs> but that was a, that was a treat. Um, you've mentioned that you have a, a affinity for Jimmy Olsen comics, especially when they took a turn for the weird. And uh, I always kind of felt that that, uh, that installment of the Jimmy Olsen comic series in which Don Rickles makes a cameo appearance for two issues could have been something that you had conceived.
2: Well, at the, at the time, I appreciated it seeing Don Rickles' big face on the on the cover of that issue, or two issues or whatever, but I did love those Jimmy Olsen comics, comics especially in the late 60s when they started, you know, when he became become the giant lizard man or the wolf man or, or, or sing like Frank Sinatra or whatever it was, you know, it was like, <laughs> you know. I think those guys really let down their hair with those comics, like, you know. and But especially the Planet of the Capes series, I think was, like, there were three of them or something. And I know Dan Close has a uh, and affection for those as well, so i haven 't looked at them for many years, but I, you know if, if I think back as like what comic books I, I enjoyed the most in, at that period, it would be the Jimmy Olson comics. Uh-huh.
1: And I believe they were the lowest selling of the DC comics. Yeah, though. well, that's another reason that I maybe I appreciated
2: them. They were lower selling than Lois Lane comics, i
1: think? Uh, I think they were on par. Yeah. But I think that also gave them a lot of license to just be far more ridiculous.
2: Yeah, well, you could tell they were having fun with those,
1: I guess. You know, why Jimmy Olsen, of all people? You know, a tough reporter,
2: <laughs> like, you know, to put him in those situations. But, you know, I enjoyed those. I, are there, is there a collection of the Jimmy Olsen comics that you know of?
1: Uh, I think just of the uh, Kirby work there is, but I oh, don't okay. think there is of the of the canon. Someone's stuff. missing the boat then, because they should be—they should all be collected. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you mentioned also that you've always enjoyed uh, drawing Woody Allen, although he has not always been pleased with the results. Um, I believe there was something about a New York Observer piece that he objected to.
2: Well, yeah, I'm a huge Woody Allen film, fan from way back, from you know his first films, and and, and uh, as as I mentioned before, I love you know the, I love drawing comedians, I love drawing Jewish comedians. That's why I came up with the, to do the, when, when my friend Monty Beauchamp asked me to do a book for his Blab series of, um, of books. that Well, the, uh, the series was, well, Blab books. And he said, would you like to do one? I said, well, I, yeah, what would what I want to do? Uh, well, what do I like drawing the most? I like drawing comedians and old Jews the most. So I put that together and came up with the old Jewish comedians. But I love drawing in, people with interesting faces like Howard Stern, Harvey Weinstein. I have a list of them, and Woody Allen is certainly right up there. I've always enjoyed drawing that face, um, but um, I also like to add his freckles because my one of my memories, strong memories of seeing him when I was a kid, was at the the opening of um, Play It Against Sam, where he's sitting in the movie theater, and the camera comes up close. Woody didn't direct that film; Herbert Ross did. But the camera pulls up, and you can really, you know. See how many freckles he had all over his face. He was just covered with orange freckles, and that kind of stuck stuck with me. You don't really pick up on that as, as much in the later films. I think Woody played that down, but so that so I always have drawn him with the freckles. Like you know, even if I've drawn him in a bathing suit, he's covered with orange orange freckles. So, and now as he's getting older, he's got more liver spots. So it's a combination of liver spots and freckles. Liver <laughs> spots are my Nina's. You know, Hirschfeld had Nina. I have liver spots. So that's sort of my trademark people look for that
1: i think i learned what the phrase liver spots means or heard it for the first time um because of your work i think it was okay. in i think it was i in learned
2: H- about them from from david levine david levine always was you know he I always appreciated the the, the fine the, the fine art of liver spotting um so many faces <laughs> you know in his caricatures you know from the 60s and 70s and i would just always notice those dots you know the are on, are on the foreheads of you know his subjects, right. and you know, I was fascinated. I didn't know what a liver spot was. <laughs> I don't. I think I might have one right now. <laughs> so, you know, I'm sure I'm gonna I'm gonna be inflicted with them sooner or later. But um, but Woody took offense to one drawing uh, where he actually did a piece for the New York Observer. He wrote a piece about his love for the New York Knicks. The cover. It was a cover piece. Um, so I drew him at the typewriter. Um, like an old-fashioned old, old Underwood typewriter sitting ringside, like with a fedora on his head and a press pass, like a, a throwback, you know, just a throwback um, drawing for like looking like it was from the 30s of Woody, you know, like, typing away, watching the New York Knicks, the current New York Knicks. And it ran large on the cover along with this piece, and the next day or that day his sister called, his sister, Letty, called on his behalf and said, Woody is furious and he's never going to write for you guys again. He, Angry about this drawing and like that. So I was very, I was upset. I was hurt because um, I love Woody and, I, and the last thing I wanted to do was offend him or upset him, but, you know, I want my work to be as honest as possible or, you know, so I, just, I don't want to hold back. Um, I, I, I think I, well, you know, I have a great deal of affection for many of my subjects. Not always. I mean, I, you know, not Dick Cheney or not Sarah Palin, but, I mean, that's different. I go back and forth between politics and show business, but you know, usually with the show business stuff, I have to have affection for. Of these people. If I'm going to spend the time drawing them, mm-hmm. but what he, you know, he didn't. He wasn't very pleased with it. So I've drawn him a few times since then, and you know, I try to be kinder to him. But you know, I still add the liver spots. I can't stop. And. <laughs> <blood.
1: So. laughs> um, and you do have a lot of um, politics and a lot of show business in your upcoming book. Too soon. What can you tell us about uh, the contents of, of the book that's coming out at the end of August from Fantagraphics?
2: Well, too soon. Which is like too soon, like quite like too soon. Like you know, too soon is the the. the I think Gilbert Gottfried made it. Uh, he was the first to use that phrase, or not use it. But after 9/11, he, he went out. He did a comedy show the night the uh, the next night and made some kind of reference to a plane hitting the Empire State Building or something. And somebody screamed out "Too soon" from the audience. You know, so that sort of stuck. You know, it's now people use it. You know, on Facebook or you know, for if you say something inappropriate or. or too soon after a tragedy that's like so sure enough i had to go online and say okay well has somebody else used this too soon you know as a title yet you know so i did a lot of research and no nobody had used it yet so i'm safe so i used it now of course there's a cd coming out with the title too soon but i think i'm getting this book out ahead of time um but the book is half politics and half show business so it's it, it covers the last 15 years mostly my magazine and um Work I've done for magazines and newspapers, uh, a lot of work for Time Magazine, and Entertainment Weekly, and the New York Times and the New Yorker, and the Newsweek and things like that. And the first half is uh, the political section, starting with Bill Clinton, sort of like during his downslide, you know, with Monica Lewinsky, and ending with um, Obama becoming president. My uh, the cover I did for the New Yorker is included in the book, of Obama. Um, uh, it was the inauguration cover week. Cover. It was Obama posed as George Washington, so that's in the book as well. That's one of the last images in the political section. And the show business section is a little more lighthearted. It's a mix mix of old, uh, you know, old timers like Groucho uh, on You Bet Your Life and Bob and Ray and Dean Martin, Frank Sinatra, leading up to more contemporary pieces. Like, um, well, there's actually no Friends in the book, and that's a guarantee. Um, over the years, when I was doing work, a lot of work for Entertainment Weekly, they would. Always assigned me to uh, pieces to do with the Friends, the TV show, The Friends.
1: <laughs> I never,
2: I never watched. I could never bring myself to watch it. Um, you know, I don't know. If I, I just there was just something that prevented me from watching. I just couldn't bring myself to watch a show called Friends.
1: <laughs> um, but I had to
2: draw them over and over. You know, I mean, it was you know it was work. So, but finally, I, I like just had a no Friends clause uh, you know, that I instigated or instilled. Um, And finally, I just stopped drawing the friends. I couldn't deal with it anymore. So there's no friends in this book, in this book, too. And if you don't want to see any images of the friends, this is the book for you.
1: Uh, Well, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to uh, speak with us today, Drew. And uh, we're all going to be looking forward to, too soon, Famous and Famous Celebrities 1995 to 2010, wonderful new anthology from Drew Friedman coming out at the end of August from Fantagraphics Books. Thanks, Thanks, Drew. Thanks, Cliff. Yep, thank you.
2: It's a game!